Revelation 2 and 3. You shouldn't need a lot of time to get there now, right? Right there. This is uh, the passage, actually, that Travis suggested that I, that I preach from. I'm very excited to have two sermons, uh, maybe six, no, uh, to, 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 do, to look at this passage with you. I was so blessed uh, these last few weeks studying this, uh, blessed and convicted. Um, I hope that, uh, that you would see that today, too, that, uh, that you'd see some of that, um, that this would be uh, something that's very fruitful and, and edifying for you. Yeah, the more I looked at it, the more convicted I got. And uh, uh, yeah, so if I have to be convicted, so do you. I like this because a lot of times we look around at the churches and maybe at our church and uh, we kind of wonder uh, how we're doing. Like, how are we doing as a church? If, if Jesus was here, what would he say about us? Uh, what, what, if he wrote a letter to Grace Church uh, or even maybe the church in, in the area, uh, what would he say about us? It would be cool to know that. It would be cool to, know, to have exactly uh, what Jesus thinks uh, of, of how we're doing written down. And here we get kind of as close to that as possible. So Jesus has, has uh, ascended and he's been in heaven for a while now uh, on his throne there and the church age has begun and, and we've had several decades of that and so we get kind of an early evaluation of uh, what's going on in the church and how it's doing. And, and so there's really also a lot here to help, even though, this was, even though this was six decades, this was very early on, there's really a lot here to help us to evaluate ourselves as a church also. So here, here's where we're going. I, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the setting. That'll be the first subject we look at. Then, then we're going to look at the structure of chapters two and three, and then we're going to look at a warning, and then at what I'm calling the descent. So it'll be four points essentially, in your outline. So the setting, and this is, this is kind of what we need to do. That's why expositional preaching is so good, what, what, going through one book, going all the way through, because you get to go through the setting already, and you guys already have that in your mind. But when, when I come up here, I want to make sure that you're fresh with the understanding of what's kind of going on right here when Revelation is written. Revelation is written, as you saw, by John, the apostle of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus who becomes an apostle. Uh, it's written by him while he's in exile on the island of Patmos in about 96 A.D. About 96 A.D. He's put there to keep him as kind of a punishment, as discipline, to keep him from spreading the gospel and growing the church. You can see that in, in 1.9 that we just read. It, that he says, I'm here because of, on account of my testimony, on account of the witness um, of, of Christ. Uh, his crime was on the account of the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. So what the Roman government found out in the early church time was that um, putting Christian leaders to death, putting the apostles to death, that did not work how they wanted it to, to stop the church. It caused the church to grow. But you also couldn't let them run around teaching still because that also caused the church to grow. So the emperor Domitian, he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put them on an island. That'll, that'll solve that. They don't get to be inspired by his martyrdom, and they don't, he doesn't get to keep teaching. It's win-win. Oh, but he didn't know that Jesus would appear to him and, and uh, tell John, dictate to John, words that would be Holy Scripture for the rest of us. Uh, so that didn't work out either. So he's placed there by Domitian during, during Domitian's persecution, uh, of Christians, which was kind of, a, it was more of a widespread persecution than Nero. Nero's persecution is a li little bit more famous because it's, we have a lot more of the gory details of what Nero was up to and what he was doing, but it was mainly focused in Rome and, and Domitian, when he is emperor, he, he spreads out the persecution and we don't quite know exactly all of the details, but we do know that Christians at this time are despised and they are hated uh, by culture in general for many various reasons. Um, it was primarily the leaders of the Jewish religion, actually, who pushed the Roman government to more and more harsh persecution of the Christians. Uh, uh, Judaism was an established religion under Rome. It was, a, it was, it was recognized by the government. Christianity was not. 
And so, you, and you could actually see this, this trend beginning in the book of Acts and even during the trial of Jesus, pushing the Roman government to get rid of, uh, the, the, to stop this, this, what they considered a dangerous sect of Judaism. Uh, it's not right. It's not the same. Uh, they didn't like it. And so, so they're pushing the Roman government into this persecution a little bit. And we'll see that. Uh, uh, we'll see a little bit of that probably next week more. Um, but uh, Christians are despised and hated. That, that's kind of what I want you to see. They did not participate in, the, in some of the reasons are they didn't participate in emperor worship, which is a big thing that, that they were supposed to say Caesar is Lord. That was kind of a rule and they wouldn't do it. Um, they, uh, they did not recognize Caesar as the ultimate authority and they wouldn't offer sacrifices to him. The Romans considered them, actually, the Romans called them atheists because they refused to worship their whole pantheon of Roman gods and, and, and they, they wouldn't bow down to idols, but they worshiped some invisible god and they didn't understand that. So to them, they said, that's atheism. That's not, not believing in a god. Uh, they're considered by a lot of people, they're considered cannibals because of a misunderstanding about communion. Uh, and, and we have letters from various leaders in the Roman government from around that time that indicate how bad the spread of Christianity was for Rome economically. And so they, they had an issue with that. I mean, you can see that no one, as Christianity spreads, less people are buying the sacrificial animals. Christians refuse to participate in the immoral forms of entertainment that the rest of society loved so much. And so you didn't want to feel guilty going into the Colosseum by these Christians out there. Uh, so it was, it was bad for the economy. Um, so that these, those are just a few. That's a smattering of the, the reasons that, that Christians are hated at the time. And again, we don't have quite as many details about, about how bad that the persecution was. But we know that it's bad enough to get John exiled, and and at least uh, at least one man we we find out in the in the third letter here, to, the letter to Pergamum, named Antipas, was martyred uh, for his faith. So it's quite safe to say this is what you need to understand. It's quite safe to say that it was much worse for them than any type of persecution that we have to endure now in a culture. I mean, I know. The, the rough persecution of having your coworkers wish you happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. And that's kind of what we've like, that's all like a rallying point for Christians on Facebook, which is not persecution at all. Um, that, the difference between that and what they're going through is, is, is quite a bit. And there are early documents that indicate that, that the Roman government even boiled John alive before he was exiled, boiled him in oil before he was exiled to, uh, to Patmos. He didn't die, obviously, but was boiled in oil to, to the point where he is probably pretty physically scarred at this point. Um, John, so, so, so just kind of get that picture in your head and, and understand that John at this point is the last of the apostles. He's the last one left. All of the other ones are dead. In fact, Peter and Paul have been dead for over 30 years already. And John is the only one left. It's been almost six decades since Jesus was physically walking the earth. And at this point, you've got to think in John that, that his memories of Jesus, six, so 60 years, his memories of Jesus are, are, are becoming more, and, and seeing him and hearing him, those are becoming more distant and and the loud sound of the culture around him is uh, it's anti-Christian, is, is raising up against him. Uh, and and he, you know, he remembers that the last time anybody saw Jesus, two angels, remember in Acts, two angels appear and promise that Jesus is going to return the same way he left. So you've got to think that John... And some of the Christians at this time might be experiencing a little bit of confusion. Right? Most everyone else who heard that promise from those angels is dead. The miraculous works that were such a mark of what was going on in the early church were, were starting to cease. And clearly, clearly, from John's perspective, the miraculous rescues from prison that we're seeing in Acts, from when Peter gets out, when Paul gets out, 
Uh, those aren't happening anymore as he's still on this island. The church is being attacked through persecution from the outside and, and from corrupting teaching from the inside. And this is the setting that Jesus chooses to show up in and give one final job to his faithful servant, John, and gives him a message, gives him words to write down and give to his church, to Christ's church. A message that shows that far, far from abandoning his church, the Lord of the church walks among them and knows all that they do and all that they go through. So with that as the backdrop, let's read Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise, in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have come there, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You as near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my, from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so now with that fresh in your mind, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of what we just read. Now, the, the, the best way to, to, to really get the most out of this would be to do sermons on each of the different letters, but, but there, is, there is a lot to be seen when we do a quick overview like we're doing today. Um, and, and one of those things that you see is the structure here. So there's a couple things that I want to point out to you about how the letters are organized. The main way we notice their organization is that they are in the order that someone carrying the letters would naturally travel, like a postal route, naturally travel from church to church uh, throughout uh, that area. They, that, that's how they would go. But um, if we focus on the content of the letters, we can see another way that the amazing sovereign God of the universe has organized them. We can see a chiastic structure to the way these letters are organized. And if you remember, way back when I preached on Lamentations, I, I talked about the, the, the chiasm structure in Lamentations, how um, essentially what that means is, is there's these ends, there's Lamentations 1, Lamentations 5, and they kind of both 
They, the one and two build up to a central point in the middle of three. Four and five come down from a central point in three. Um, and so if you remember that, I, I talked about that. You, you see a similar thing here. Um, and and I, this isn't everywhere in Scripture, but it, this is in a lot of places in Scripture. They are common, and I don't see them everywhere uh, in Scripture. But I checked with some other commentaries just to make sure I was seeing this clearly. Um, just in case you think uh, I'm, I'm just, just want those to be everywhere. Um, but if you look at the content of each letter, this is what you see. Uh, you have on one side of this letter, you have Ephesus. And on the other side, you have Laodicea. Um, these are two of the five churches that are asked to repent of something. Uh, and then you have, so you have Ephesus, Laodicea, and then you have, on either side, you have Smyrna and Philadelphia, which are the two churches that, are, that, that are, have been faithful and don't have anything that, God, that Jesus is asking them to repent of. Um, so, so you see that, and, that kinda, and so you have this, this clear kind of beginning, beginning point in Ephesus, this clear ending point in Laodicea, and then that focuses the attention on the three middle uh, the, the three middle uh, letters. And, and so when you look at those churches, the three middle ones, you see this definite move in the wrong direction uh, of churches turning from Christ. So you see in Ephesus, a church that has, not, has yet to succumb to any false teaching, but still has an issue that needs to be worked on. But they haven't succumbed to false teaching. And on the other end, uh, you see... like. Of those five churches, the churches that have been asked to repent of something, Ephesus is clearly the healthiest. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have Laodicea, which is clearly portrayed as the worst of the churches. There is nothing in Laodicea that is commended at all. There's no reason to think that there are any faithful believers in the church. Christ is portrayed, in fact, if you look at it, as standing outside of the church, of a church that has closed the door on him. So you have the best of these five churches on one end, the worst on the other, and then kind of framing the three in the middle, you have the two, um, the, the two faithful churches. Uh, so, so you see this clear digression in the middle three churches showing the path from Ephesus to Laodicea. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I want to focus on today. Um, they, show that they show essentially a warning sign in Ephesus that as you follow it through in the three churches in the middle, you see how the progression to Laodicea. And that might not make sense now, but hopefully you'll see it as we work through this. Uh, so just, I, I just want to point out to help build my case here, three verses real quick in that middle section that, that will help you see how there is this clear digression um, from Ephesus to Laodicea. If you just take the five churches that are asked to repent, there's this clear digression that you see in the middle three churches. So, look at 2.14. Uh, if you look at the, the church in Pergamum, which is the, Pergamum, which is the first of those uh, churches, you see in verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So, you, he says you have some. You have a few. There's, there's some people there who hold this teaching. In 2.24, if you look down uh, in, in Thyatira, which is the second church in that digression, you see, to the, you see him say, well, let's look at a little 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay uh, on you any other burden. So, so in the first one, right, we see there's some that have, that have fallen away. In this one, he says, the rest of you who have not fallen away. So you get, it sounds more like a middle of the road, like there's, there's a, a bunch and then there's, there's the rest who haven't. And then when you look in Sardis at 3-4, you get, you get this. Uh, first, there's no, cond or no commendation leading up to in, in Sardis up until this point in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So you see, you go from uh, 
some who have fallen away to the rest of you who haven't fallen away to a few people who haven't fallen away. And on the bookends, you have Ephesus, which is which, which uh, doesn't say necessarily that there's anyone there who has completely fallen away, just that they have this warning, they have an issue that needs, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be worked on, to Laodicea, where there's no evidence that there's anyone, that there's no evidence that there's anyone who is even a believer there in Laodicea. Um, they're the church that's going to be spit out of the mouth of Christ. So, so, so we see in these churches an increasing, what you see in these three churches is an increasing acceptance of false teaching and worldly influence and a decreasing ability to remember and hold fast to the gospel and right doctrine. We see Pergamum holding fast and, deny, and not denying the faith in 2.13. They know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, did not den- deny my faith. We see Christians in Thyatira being told that they need to hold fast. So we, we, we see, and again, this is more evidence of, of the, uh, of the um, move downward, uh, is that, that you see that they're holding fast to the faith still in Pergamum. And then in Thyatira in 24 and 25, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast. So, so Pergamum is holding fast. Thyatira needs to be holding fast. And in Sardis, in verse 3 in Sardis, remember then what you received and heard. It's like they've forgotten. They've forgotten it completely. And they need to, they need to return to it. So again, you see this downward movement of these three churches. And it's this last step, that last step and that we see in Sardis right before Laodicea, which is the church with absolutely, the church in Laodicea, the church with absolutely nothing good about it. Nothing good about it, even though it believes that it's doing great. That's what it says about Laodicea. They believe they're doing great. They believe they're rich. They believe everything's fine. But Christ doesn't even recognize them really as a church at all. But at the very least, I hope you can see, hopefully you can see a, a fairly clear, definite move downward from Ephesus to Laodicea if you take out the two faithful churches that I think bracket the, the three that show the, the digression. And we'll talk about the two faithful churches next week. And th- this week, I want to really focus on these five churches that have been asked to repent of something. And, and, I wanna, and, and then hopefully next week, You'll have this in your mind in the background, and we'll make what we talk about next week um, even more glorious. So, uh, God intended, what I want you to see, God intended for each church here to, to read all of these letters and take the warnings and examples found in each one seriously. Each of these individual liter- letters has one line in common that you, that you hopefully saw as we were reading through that. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, that's, that's plural. Right? All the churches are supposed to hear what's, and understand the message that's given to each individual church. And you can see, then, then you can see that one of the main reasons for this, why this would be important to, to Christ, that they all see, all, like that they all essentially look in everyone else's mail, is is to avoid this slide, avoid this downward um, movement to Laodicea. Recognize the path that leads you to becoming a church like that. So this week, again, we're going to analyze that path in those five churches. And we're going to look at what to avoid. So it's going to seem a little more negative in this message. It's gonna, we're going to look at what we need to be avoiding, and next week we'll look more at what we need to be striving after. There'll still be some striving after in this one, though. So, uh, so then, so that's setting structure. Now, now the warning sign. I'm going to spend most of my time here, most of the time here in the in the church at Ephesus, um, because. Honestly, I think that this is probably the, where, where our church needs to be looking the most. 
Um, but, but then we'll look at the others. So, we see this warning sign in 2, 2 through 7. We see uh, Jesus saying to his church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand and its place, unless you repent. Now, in, these, in all five of these churches, there's so much really good stuff to look at, like why Jesus is opening the way he's opening, introducing himself the way he's introducing himself, and why, he's, um, why he gives them the, the promise that he gives them at the end. Um, but we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus specifically on the content of what, what he's commanding his churches in these letters. So the church in Ephesus has some really awesome things said about it. It's a, some really good things said about it. Each of these five churches has a section of commendation that gets smaller and smaller until you get to Laodicea again where there's nothing at all. But Ephesus is the only one of the five where more words are actually given to what they're doing right than what they're doing wrong. More time is spent talking about what they're doing right than what they're doing wrong. And it actually, if you look at it, there's two different places. The good stuff that they're being commended, commended for actually sandwiches or brackets the, the, the stuff that they're, that they're actually being called to repentance on. Right? So, so, so they're doing more right. Uh, Pergamum has just like one sentence about what it's doing right. Thyatira has a shorter sentence. Sardis has kind of an unspecific sentence that occurs uh, after the call for repentance, showing that, and, and again, Laodicea has nothing. Uh, Ephesus appears to be the healthiest by far of these churches. Um, and many times, see, this is what's unfair. Many times people generalize the, the letters of Revelation by saying five bad churches, two good churches. That, and that's kind of an unfair generalization because um, that's true. There are two faithful churches, and there are five that are called to repentance. But to throw Ephesus in the same place as Sardis and Laodicea uh, is really unfair. Um, Jesus himself, Jesus Christ himself, has a very good things to say about this church. People do a disservice to the letter of Ephesus and even Pergamum and Thyatira, when they pretend there's, there are only bad churches here and they only focus on the problems. The church as a whole today would actually probably be in a lot better state if most of the churches would refer to, would, would repent and turn back to being more like Ephesus. And so and there's this, a huge issue, the way that most pastors I've heard preach this, if they're just preaching on the church um, in Ephesus, if they're just preaching on that letter, they link, uh, they do this thing, they, they become, they say something along the lines of, the church in Ephesus became so obsessed with a doctrine and looking out for false teachers that they lost their first love. And, that, and they link the two together. Like the, they, the reason they lost their first love was because they were, loving doctrine and looking out against false teachers. But, but there is nothing in the text to, to imply that that's the case. There's nothing here that, that would show that, that the reason that they abandoned their first love because, was because of a zeal for doctrine. That's just wrong. That's a bad interpretation. That's a bad teaching. The command here is not, is not even close to abandoning, testing false teachers and abandoning, testing false testing false teaching um, or even to stop hating it that, so, so that you can love better. That's not the command. That, that's not there at all. Jesus is telling them to keep doing what they're doing. To keep doing it. He's, he, Jesus is saying, you're doing a good job at this. Keep it up. He's saying, that to, he's saying to keep doing that and also Go back to your first love. 
you know, the clear evaluation is Jesus is, um, and Jesus here is that he's glad to see them standing against false teaching and glad to see that they're not growing weary of it. And the church in this country actually it desperately needs to see and understand this, the church overall in this country. It is not unloving to take every teaching we hear and compare it to the pure teaching of the Bible and then outright reject it if, it, if it's evil. It's not. Notice, notice there, there are people who are claiming to be true Christian teachers. They're claiming to be apostles. Those are the ones who, who are being rejected. Right? These are things that we are to judge and expose. These type of teachers still exist today, and, and Jesus wants them exposed. He wants them exposed by the church. Um, these letters, think about this, they're being written 60 years after the ascension of Christ, and already false teaching is, is popping up in the church. It's infiltrating the church. It's spreading everywhere. We see this in, in the letters even, even earlier, 30 years earlier, in the letters that Paul wrote and Peter wrote. We see false teaching popping up and they're com- combating and confronting false teaching that's growing up in the church already. And Jesus promised us during His earthly ministry that false teaching, as time goes on, will only continue to get worse and more deceptive. That's what's coming. So, so in that case... It would be foolish for us to believe for a minute, believe for a minute that in this day and age there isn't a multitude of teaching that there, out there that claims to be Christian but is just worldly and of the devil. Right? Look at verse, look at verse 6 again. <clears throat> Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Isn't it interesting that in this letter where Jesus is commanding a church to return to their first love, he also commends them for hatred? You, you see that? We, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans and what they taught. All we can gather from kind of history is that they, um, is that they were a type of false teaching that combined elements of Christianity with essentially indulging in worldly, sinful types of desires. And not only does Jesus commend them for hating it, saying that's a good thing, that you hate that. He says, he says what? He says, I hate it too. I hate it too. Jesus hates the teaching too. Jesus Christ, yes, the same Jesus who commands us to be marked by our love, looks down from on high from his exalted throne in heaven and hates the work of false teachers. And he wants us to hate it too. That's a strong word. Therefore, when Jesus is calling the church to return to their first love, to the love that they had at first, He is not asking them, he is not asking them to turn into a bunch of weak-willed people who never speak a rebuking word in any direction because it might seem unkind, or people who refuse to confront sin because it might come across as unloving, or the type of church who refuses to call out someone who claims to be a a Christian but is teaching something completely contrary to what Christ has already taught. His call to love is, is not a call to never hate. It is a call to love what you're supposed to and hate what you're supposed to. This is the context. This is the context for Jesus warning about abandoning their first love. Jesus commends them, commends them for not growing weary in their fight against heresy, but knows, knows that the only thing that will keep them firm in their fight is a fierce love Christ. Right now, our church, Grace Church, is growing through what I see as a time of renewed vigor for right doctrine and sound teaching, and I love that. And it excites me so much. And this is absolutely essential, 
absolutely essential to have in order to keep from falling into this descent that we're going to see all these other churches fall into. You have to have this or you're doomed to go down that, that road. But if we do not hold fast to our love for Christ throughout this fight, during this fight against heresy, and, and during our this time of zeal for the truth, and it will become very easy to grow weary of the fight and to give up and to slip into this slow acceptance of things that we should hate. It can get so wearisome. It can, can't it? Losing close friends who, who may even be Christians because you're unwilling to bend on areas that the Bible is unwilling to bend on. I remember um, listening uh, to this hour and a half long sermon a few years ago uh, from a guy who said that he was going to demonstrate clearly from Scripture that there's such a thing as pure homosexual love and that God would even delight in it and nothing in Scripture that's really against that. And I, I mean... Granted, I, I watched it uh, because I was hearing this guy being quoted from time to time. And I was angry that this guy's false teaching was already infiltrating the church. But I remember that while I was watching it, there's, just, there's this little part of me thinking, wouldn't it be nice if he was right, though? Uh, and it's and he's not not even close. But I I, I remember thinking I'm I'm so weary of this debate. This is like all I talk about now, at the time. This is all we're doing is talking about this thing. What if we could just fold on it, and just move on? Maybe we could have a stronger effect. I was sick of being called a bigot, uh, having all of my views to me, like I felt like my witness was damaged because. All my views were dismissed immediately because of my view on this one issue that I wouldn't cave on. And, and honestly, though, what was going on inside of me at that moment, that was not a sign of me growing in love for the people around me and growing in compassion. It was a sign that I was in danger of abandoning my first love, my love for Christ, the love for a God who rescued me from the just penalty of my sin by humbling himself in a way that I could never understand, becoming God in human flesh, defeating every single temptation on the road to dying a horrible death as my substitute so I could have his righteousness credited to me in exchange for all of my sin, all of my rebellion against him. The more we know that truth, the more we understand that truth, the more grounded we will be in our first love for Him. The less likely we will ever be to be tempted to start justifying something so serious that Jesus had to die for it and God had to create hell for it. This is one of the main reasons this is one of the main reasons that, that Travis decided to take us through Luke when he started his pastor here. It's a gospel. It's a book about the life of Christ. And it's why, even though we give him a hard time about it, he is going so slowly through it. Because he cares for us. Because we desperately desperately need to see every little part, every little part of who Jesus is and what he has done in the brightest light possible. We need that so that we can love him with every ounce of our being because this is the only way that we're going to be preserved in our fight against a culture and even a Christian culture that grows more and more hostile to the truth. Love for the truth, it's good, it's right, it's necessary for every Christian, but it cannot sustain you in this fight apart from a deep love for the author of truth. 
So, therefore, a real mark, I would think, that demonstrates the depth of our love for Christ would be seen in our evangelism, in the way we share Christ with others. The more we love Christ, right, this makes sense, the more we love Christ, the more we understand who we are and what we deserve and what He has done, the more we would want to tell others. This is why it says the love you have at first. When Christ saves you, when Christ saves you, if you can remember then, you're overwhelmed. I want you to have this understanding. You're overwhelmed by, by an understanding of what has just happened, by what's taken place. You want to tell others. You want to warn others. Just like you do anything else that, that, that happens that you're excited about, right? So like if you run into someone who's just like, hey, what happened in the Super Bowl last year? You just, uh, I'll take some time and explain that to you. Um, it, you're excited about something. I, I remember um, even as a child, I remember my dad recounting so many stories of evangelism growing up, opportunities he had to share Christ with people. And then also just his testimony of how he kind of slowed down and didn't see it happening as often as before as he grew farther and farther away from the, the day that God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. And so you see, and you can see it in him now, the way that he renews his vigor for evangelism is through understanding better and better who Christ is and what he's done for him what he's been saved from. Right? That's why you, you, know, you guys all know he, how, how much he likes to talk about hell and how bad it is. That helps him evangelize. It helps him to remember what Christ has saved him from. No matter how strong you think you are doctrinally, if you don't see some sort of evangelism in your life, oh, you need to renew your love for Christ because there should be some sort of desire to tell others. Right? Maybe the desire is there. Oh, hey, maybe the desire is there. And, you, and there's just some practical things that are making it hard for you. Well, good news. We're here to take away your excuses because on January 22nd, on Sunday night, Travis will be starting a study that's specifically designed to help us in our evangelism. So if you're struggling with evangelistic conversations or anything like that, Sunday night, January 22nd, be here. There's a plug. This, this is how I get to preaching again next week. Uh, okay, so, so hopefully in all of that, you can see that Ephesus was doing a lot of the stuff. Hopefully a lot of the stuff that it's supposed to be doing. It's, doing, it's doing, essentially doing the stuff it's supposed to be doing, but it's got this one issue. It's in danger of falling away if it doesn't refocus. If it doesn't refocus on the foundation for doing all of those things, which is love for Christ. Notice Jesus says, notice Jesus says he'll take their lampstand lamp away if they don't return to their first love. That means their strong testimony they have right now, it's going to perish if they don't take this warning seriously. And so as we look really quickly now at the descent down in the next three churches, then one, one thing we can obviously assume has happened is that they have lost their first love. They've lost their first love. That they've already failed in this area where Ephesus is being warned. Because, and, and you'll see that here in a second. Pergamum, right, if you look at the letter to Pergamum, Pergamum is said to be where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. And there, there's a few different things that that could be. Uh, it could be a reference to one of a couple of different um, places, uh, temples, idol-worshiping temples that they have around there. Uh, it could be a reference to the fact that Pergamum is, was kind of a central location for, for emperor worship. One of those, it could, could be something like that. But Pergamum's a tough place to live and to be a Christian in. And uh, you see, you can see right away in Pergamum that there is still good being done here, there, that there are still those standing for the truth, so much so that, that Antipas dies, he's a martyr for the faith. Um, but you can also see comp compromise with the world has begun to take a foothold. We see 
in there, we t- it talks about the teaching of Balaam. And, and if you remember that we won't go back to that, but, but what essentially Balaam, what his teaching was, how he got the Israelites to turn away from God was to get them involved in sexual immorality. So, so you see, um, and, and, and idol worship through marriage of, of women outside of the faith. So, so we see the, the teaching of Balaam. We see mixing in of sexual immorality. And contrary, notice this. This is how you see the slide. Contrary to what, to Ephesus' hatred of the Nicolaitans, we see that Pergamum is accepting it. Right? There's, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, meaning that their teaching is being allowed. Not everyone's holding to it, but their teaching is at least being allowed in the church there. And some are succumbing to it. If there's no love for Christ, this is what happens. The battle, then the motivation to battle the world begins to wane and you just begin to start to fall into these things. Now, quickly, we'll just run through the rest of these fast. Now, quickly look at what's going on in Thyatira. Again, there's some good things going on there. They're apparently doing some, some good works. Uh, it says they're doing things in, in love and faith and service and, and even growing. Like they, Some of the works that they're doing are, are stronger than the ones that they were doing before. But as, as you look through the letter, that, that positive message is drowned out by, what, by, by the following verses of 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So, so we see some, some good stuff there, but it's drowned out by the, by the, here's what you're accepting, here's what you're allowing um, it, there's only, again, there's some of you or there's the rest of you that don't, that haven't fallen to this temptation. Um, we see that sexual immorality is even more prevalent there. Um, and, and here's, as I looked and I studied the church at Thyatira more, what struck me is that this is the church that it seems like most American churches are striving to become. A church that does good works, which isn't a bad thing, but has a tolerance, and it uses the word tolerance, tolerance for sexual sin and letting that slide. That, isn't that, that seems like where a majority of churches want to be seen. We want to be known for what we do in the community and for the fact that we tolerate sexual sin. We tolerate sinners just the way they are, and they don't have to change sort of thing. This is how they want to be seen, but Jesus is very clear here in those verses we just read that those people are going to be cast out. Those who have accepted this teaching are not among the ones that Jesus has positive words for and are, in fact, those who will be cast out with the other unbelievers. And so you see that, and then you take the next step where, so, so you have this step when churches are longing to be like Thyatira, and I, I think most churches end up like Sardis. They inevitably become like that. A church that the outside world thinks is alive because of all the programs and all the events that they have going on. They, they look alive, but in the eyes of Jesus, they're dead. That's what he says. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. 
Their garments, notice it says their garments have been soiled. Their garments are soiled. There are no white, the white garments are soiled with the filth of this world from marrying themselves and their doctrine to worldly teaching and sinful desires. Now you've seen these churches, right? You've seen them. They're everywhere. They emphasize Scripture only when it helps them make the point they want to make as they embrace every cultural whim of entertainment, psychology, and just this general kind of focus on the importance of yourself. And, and just like in Sardis, there might be a few Christians in those churches, but they're rare. And then that leads to the last stage, Laodicea, a church that's not really a church at all. The few remaining believers that maybe we see in Sardis are gone. Church that thinks, and notice what it thinks about itself. For you say, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. They think they're fine, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, you're blind, naked. Church that thinks everything is great and prosperous, everything's going well, I'm feeling good about myself, but in fact, is blind, spiritually blind to the truth of their situation. Believes itself to be doing great things, but it so disgusts Christ that he wants or that he will spew them out of his mouth. And I fear that. If, if churches in our country aren't there already, that is where they're headed. And then just like Laodicea, it's under the guise of everything's great. This is where we should be going. No concept of the wretchedness, the nakedness, the poor, the blindness. I fear that's where the churches in this culture are headed. So I want to see, I want us to see that there are really, really only two points, and it's probably some subpoints, two points of application in this whole sermon. I hope that they've become obvious to you as as it has progressed. We are to fight every form of false teaching, every form of sinful corruption, hold fast against it that tries to find its way into the church and plead with those that remain outside the church in their bondage to sin still. It's one point of application. The other, in order to make sure that you do not grow weary in this fight, in this task, grow in your love for Christ. Grow. And it's not, not like an emotional, feely, I get emotional singing about Jesus sort of way. It's a command to grow. The way to do that is to learn more about him. This is done through studying who he is, being here on Sundays and hearing who he is in the sermons, understanding him better, knowing him better. So this is right now we're in the Christmas season. Don't waste it with concern for material things. Remember, use it as a time to remember to meditate on the love of a Savior who came into this fallen world to save those who were once his enemies. Meditate on that. Grow in your love for Christ through that. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you so much that you didn't just come to earth, create the earth, and then just leave it that you loved us enough to come here to die a death you didn't deserve so that we can be present with you one day, so that we can be made holy, sinful man made holy. And Lord, you didn't even stop there, but you gave us your word. You gave us these warnings. As we sung earlier, let us not come to, to your word ever without a heart willing to be changed by it. 
Lord, I thank you for this church and, and, and the unbelievable growth that I've seen. It seems like um, a call to repentance was heeded in this church at some point. I pray, I pray that we would continue on vigilantly defending the gospel and at the same time loving the author of that gospel more and more and more in Jesus' name.